Let's open in prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And to him be glory right now in this church. Amen. Well, thank you for joining with us today and for uh, lifting your heart with my heart uh, to worship our glorious God. We're moving on in 1 John, and uh, today we get to chapter 3, verses 11 through, through 18. I want to begin by asking you a simple question. How is your love life? So now that I have your attention, uh, I'll explain a little bit. I do want to ask you, how's your love life? But I want you to think of your love life as something different than maybe you typically have thought of with those words. Your love life is actually the most important life you have. But I don't mean a romanticized, sexualized love life. I mean love with others in Christ. I mean love for the world as Christ shows us. I mean living love like the scripture calls us to. Love is thrown around so frequently in our society that I'm afraid we no longer recognize its biblical significance. And because we see this, we see this term used so frequently and misused so frequently that we have ceased to understand that love as it comes to us through Jesus Christ, is a revelation. And it is a gift to God's people. So we hear things like, I love you, stated by celebrities to large crowds. I love you. What's that mean? It means you're making me feel really good right now. Something like that. Or people say, I love you, when they're wanting their girlfriend to have sex with them. People learn to say it casually, flippantly. And then we end up with statements around us in our society today, love who you love. Or love is love. And these statements are meant to convey something like, Love is its, is its own justification. And really, if you, if you were to drill down into it, it'd be love is ours apart from God. So love can justify whatever we decide we're going to do. And in this world where love is so frequently, casually tossed around, we have to stop and say, have we really heard the message of love? Because love is not just tolerance. Love is not just equality. Love is not just freedom. Love is not just sexualized, romanticized, all these other things that get associated with it in our society. Love is a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. God entered the world and showed us love. And the church has been learning that message ever since. So we have the first passage here. Well, I'll come back to this in a minute. Well, okay, never mind. I'm trying to go back right now, but it's not working. Can you guys go back to the... There we go. Thank you. Um, the first, here we go. 
If you have your book, this is where, this is where it is. Your book or the Bible. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. See, this is, this is the church's message. This is not the world's message. This is not Hollywood's message. And we live in a world where, at this point, I'm afraid, because our world has a, a huge Christ-like crater upon it, it's been impacted by the work of Christ, by the Christian tradition, we have kept the word but lost the concept. And frequently, I'm afraid that's the case with the church. And that means the church has to relearn this. The church has to hear the first message again. This is the message that we've got from the beginning. See, this is what we have to teach people when they become Christians. We have to not, not assume that this is just what comes naturally to people, Right? Now, I'm afraid that's what people think today is that, well, if you just know the word love, somebody says love, and you go, well, yeah, you just do that, right? It's just right there. And then we, we water it down so that we don't know that this was a revelation from God. And when we hear things like love, we think, well, just be nice. As if, you know, that later in, the, later in the, uh, John uh, chapter 4, we get the, the scripture, uh, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And it's as if we hear that scripture and we think, he who's not nice does not know God, for God is nice. But that's not it at all. That's not even close to the message. I mean, I'm sure God is nice. The Bible never actually says God is nice. And in, uh, in our society, I'm afraid that means something other than what we're meant to get from the scriptures when we hear that God is love. Let me say again that with Christ, love is a revelation. It's a different way of being human. It is God himself showing us what he is like. He's showing us what our future is to be like. Did you catch that? That uh, when we went through chapter 2 uh, earlier, there we go, right there. Um, John says, I'm, I'm giving you a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. See, it's true in God, it's true in Christ, but it's also true in you people. It's meant to be here, but, but notice what it is. We get this passage, we get this commandment. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We get this new commandment because we're at a new stage in history. Christ has come and the light of the new age is dawning. There's a new power, there's a new presence, there's a new pattern to follow in Christ. And this is about life from above. This is not just a new way we can try harder to do better. It's not a new moralism like, okay, now let's, let's try to love more. I'm afraid that people are beat down in the spiritual lives because they hear this as a new rule they're supposed to follow and they don't know they're supposed to have stepped into a new world and to have received new life and to have had the light of Christ shining upon them and then from that world we love and love is different than being nice and being tolerant 
Of course, those are appropriate in, in, in their places. But we've got something much richer and fuller than that. Because of this world, when we're, the world that we've been called to inhabit. <clears throat> One of the most beautiful things I think N.T. Wright has ever written is his book, Surprised by Hope. He's talking about this being, love being the future. Love is the food they eat in God's new world. And we must acquire the taste for it here and now. It is the music God has written for all his creatures to sing. And we are called to learn it and practice it now so as to be ready when the conductor brings down the baton. You understand that God's future for his people is radical, beautiful, overflowing love. That's the future world. That's what always existed in God himself. But with Jesus Christ, he tore the veil and said, I'm going to bring the future into the present. I'm going to let the light begin to dawn now. And we learn now to acquire the taste for the food that's going to be ours into eternity. This is the message we've heard from the beginning. It is the church's message. And we need to stop today and ask, have we really heard that message? When we baptize people, we need to teach them from the beginning, you're called to a life of love that many people will not understand. When we make people members of this church, we need to remind them that you are called to a life of love that many people will not understand. When our hearts have grown cold over time in the church and we've become too familiar with each other and with the way things work, we need to rise up to one another and say, hey, we're called to love because the light has already dawned and it shined on us. And it doesn't come from within us. We are reflecting the light. We are channeling the light of God to those around us. This is the message we've heard from the beginning. And then immediately after this verse, uh, I'll just go back to the top here. We get a contrast. What love is not? John says we should not be like Cain. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? God was not okay with Cain's, sacri- with Cain's offering. He was okay with Abel's offering. And Cain appears to be jealous. And he says, I'm going to kill him. And he does just that. He kills his brother Abel. All right. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. And murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now get this. Of course, we, we, we read about Cain and we feel pretty good about ourselves. We say, well, you know, I never killed anybody. Don't think I'm going to. So I'm doing all right. But, but John doesn't leave us there. He, he presses us to go to the roots here. And he says, he says Cain killed his brother why because he was living unrighteously because his own actions were already unrighteous because Cain was in the category separate from God remember last week brother Terry talked to us about how for John there's kind of a dichotomy this hard and fast dichotomy between the groups the in and the out those who know and those who don't those who love and those who hate that's the way John is picturing the world here for us and he's saying those who are in this group of the unrighteous 
They'll end up hating those who are. Cain's actions, I'm sorry, Abel's actions confronted Cain. You see, we're not given any story that, that Abel had somehow wronged Cain, so Cain held a grudge. They'd had some dispute, and Cain couldn't get over it. We're not given anything like that. All we're given is that Abel was a righteous person. But you see, at least some of the time, this is not true in all cases, but at least some of the time, <clears throat> our righteous behavior, the righteous behavior of the church, will create hostility from those who are not like you. And, and you notice, Cain could have changed his behavior. He could have, he could have said, okay, I want to do, be different. I want to be like Abel. But he decided he would rather kill his brother than change his behavior. We're not given all the details of what went on in his heart. But I believe what happens in situations like that is that our behavior, righteous behavior, is itself an indictment against those who are unrighteous. Not because we're being judgmental. Okay, there's no excuse for judgmentalism among Christians. No excuse for being jerks because we think we're doing the right thing. And we're not talking about any of that. But sometimes it's just people living righteously that confronts and exposes and embarrasses unrighteousness. And when that happens, hostility is created. And therefore, John says, verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. And if you're experiencing hostility from people, who don't understand the ways of Christ, let me just tell you, it shouldn't be a surprise. This is just what happens. When you say, no, I'm not going to engage in gossip with you. And then, again, we don't do this with an uppity way about us, okay? I, I uh, love Dallas Willard's phrase, joyful non-cooperation with evil. You, yes, you can just smile and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's, I, I just uh, am not going to participate in that. If you, if you say, no, I won't participate in you with your gossip. I won't cover for you by lying. I won't uh, go to certain places with you, whatever it is. You may find yourself hated. Or at least strongly disliked. Your company may no longer be required. If that's who you are, don't be surprised by that. Because you've gotten a hold of something else that's better than living in those things. And don't ever treat people like they're somehow bad or lowly. You know what it's like to have been in sin. You always like to have done bad things. So we don't look at ourselves like, oh, we're so much better than others. And we, don't, we certainly never want them to get that feeling. But we also want to, to say, I joyfully choose not to cooperate with evil. And then don't worry about what people think about us. In those cases. We shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us sometimes. You know where we should be surprised to find hatred? In the church. And yet we find it there way too often. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> we know that we have passed out of death into life. Now this is what we were just talking about. A minute ago about the new age coming this is life we're not just talking about getting into life one day after we die 
We have passed from death to life now. When what? When we love the brothers and sisters. This is God's life, guys. We're going to learn later in chapter 4 this, this crazy statement. God is love. This is God. And so when we enter into a life of genuine love modeled upon Jesus Christ himself, we're entering into the, into the life of God. This is the light dawning on us. And we know that we've passed. Now, notice that that's what's called an epistemological statement. It's a statement about knowledge. Much of John, like, like Brother Terry talked about last, last week, uh, talks about how we know, what we know. And, and notice he says, we know this, and we might think of two ways where that would, be, uh, that would be possible for us to have a different kind of knowledge. One thing is, we just know sometimes when there's a love coming from us that's not, for, not of us, not like we used to be. We find ourselves able to treat people in a way that we would never have treated them before. We are experiencing love from another source then. And we might say we know that we've gotten a hold of something real when that's happening. There's another part of this passage that makes me wonder <coughs> about the epistemological claim, about the knowledge claim. That is, he says, we know we passed from, from death, we know we passed, we have passed from death to life when we, because we love the brothers and sisters. It's not just loving anybody, although that's, that should be a part of us too, loving the world around us as we encounter the world. But it's specifically the object of our love. You've got the source of our love when we experience that as coming from outside of ourselves, from God. We also have the object of our love. When we learn to love the brothers and sisters, you see, here, here's what, what happens. In contrast to, you know what we just talked about? If you're in darkness and somebody keeps shining the light on you, I mean, what's that feel like early in the morning? You got, it's dark in your room and somebody's just like, all the light on you. You're like, get out of here. You're blinding my eyes, right? Nobody likes that light to shine on them. And so that's why people start to be at enmity. They start to, to say, I don't like you. Now, uh, when I was a kid, we were taught, you cannot say you hate each other. I think I only really needed this for my brothers. Um, but I had to have a rule there. But we, we learned that we could bypass the rule. Um, this is what legalism will do with you. We could bypass the rule because we could say, I can't stand you. So that's what I would say to my brothers. I can't stand you. I didn't hate them. You know. would never say that. So let, let me just say that we're not talking about a, a rule here. And you may be thinking, well, I don't hate anybody. Well, let's just include people you really, really don't like, okay? People you would kind of like to see harm come to. Now, when that is the case for, we understand that being the case when somebody's outside Christ, right? As, as we're talking about, and your behavior maybe confronts them, makes them feel condemned, makes them feel like they're bad or something because you're doing something different than what they're doing. And we understand how that happens. You know, you say, I won't participate with the gossip. I won't participate anymore in the drinking parties. I won't go around and, and, and say it's okay for you to just, just be sleeping with whoever you want to. I'm different than that now. And those people who are in the darkness, you know what they say? Get away from me. Because you're exposing something, you're making my life difficult by exposing the way, the way things are from right now. You know what happens when you start walking in the light? You start loving people like that. 
And even if they're further down the journey than you are, when you're in the light, you say, hey, I want to get close to you. Because I see that you're in the light more than I am. And I want to keep moving into the light. And so you see people around you, and you're like, how did they get to be so generous? How did they get to be so kind? How did they become so, so full of humility? And you don't say, man, I've got to find something bad about them. I've got to say they're ignorant or stupid or whatever. You say, I love those people. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to walk the way they're walking. I'm going to get as close to them as I can so I can learn how to live, right? Guess what? You've transitioned from death to life. And you've learned to see love as the beautiful thing that it is. You've learned to see righteousness as the good thing that it is. You see how that would work? How you might know that you've transitioned when that's happening? The light has come on for you. Whoever does not love, the end of verse 14, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now this is a strong statement. But doesn't hatred come close to a desire for someone to be harmed? Let's just put it that way. I don't want us to excuse ourselves. Like I was just saying, we, we tend to excuse ourselves. Well, I don't want that. You know, I wouldn't ever want him to be killed. Well, I wonder if John's drawing on the teachings of Jesus here. You know how we talked in Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about anger and lust, he's not just, uh, he, he takes them beyond just the outward rules, like people saying, oh, I don't murder, and he goes all the way back down to anger and says, look, God cares about your heart condition. The heart condition that might want that to happen or might be willing to do that if you could, if the occasion would let you get away with it. God doesn't just care that you stay out of adultery. He cares that you, you don't have a heart that's eaten up with lust, riddled with, with uh, obsessive desire for people you shouldn't be with. God cares about the heart condition. And hatred's a heart condition. And people may not ever see it. You may be able to hide it very, very well, and it may be because of certain reasons, whatever, you would never take action to physically harm someone. But you might still be full of hatred, which is the condition that leads to that. John is calling our attention to that and saying, hey, you cannot have the life of God really abiding in you and have that kind of heart be present. The God's life drives that heart out. Anger, jealousy, resentment. I'm just talking about the things that are connected in that world. Malice, wanting to hurt people, slandering people, criticizing people, condemning people, gossiping about people. All of these things are a disgrace and a disfigurement to the body of Christ. And we have, to, we have to name it and renounce it and say it has been far too common in churches. And let's say in the name of Jesus we will be done with that kind of stuff in the body of Christ. Because it's not the light. Scripture, a scripture that has just jumped out at me for a long time is from Paul in Titus chapter 3. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish. It means we were dumb. We didn't know what we were doing. 
We were disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And most of us there, even if we're still struggling with certain, let's say, sexual sins, we'd say, yeah, I shouldn't be. That's foolish, and I'd like to be free from it. And hopefully many of us in here say, I have been set free from those kind of things. But then he gets to the next part, and he says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others. And hating one another. And then we're like, well, that sounds a lot like a lot of churches. And a lot of us could testify to experiences with Christians who have lived this way. And we see the first part and we say, oh yeah, that's darkness, that's death. You can't be led astray by your various passions and pleasures. We get to the next part and say, hey, that looks like the church. Something's bad and wrong here. Do you know what Paul says? People need, when they're spending their time in envy and hatred and wanting to hurt people, they need salvation. They need to be delivered from the darkness. Because that is a darkness, my brothers and sisters. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. See, what we need, what the church needs, what Christians need who are living with those kinds of things in their lives, they need to encounter the goodness of God and to be set free from these kinds of things. They need the Savior. Verse 16. By this we know love. Now we get to the positive expression, the positive understanding of love. We've dealt with the contrast. This is love. We know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. This is what love looks like. It doesn't look like just a feeling, although it has feelings associated with it. And thank God for that. Love is not just a feeling. Love is an action, but it's not just any action. It is an action of sacrifice. It's an action of gift. Jesus laid down his life. He took it off and put it down. And if we ever can just stop and stand in awe before the cross of Christ and realize that right what was behind the cross at the center of everything, it was not just some cosmic agreement that God was trying to work out for rules we don't understand. That's not what happened at the cross. What happened was the greatest act of love in human history was shown. And God's heart of love for us, the love of Christ, came pouring through that cross. And this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love should be in the church. We're never going to be as great as Jesus, but we say that's our model. That's where I get started thinking about what love is, and that's then how I learn to act with others around me. Pouring out for others. Then verse 17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, you see this is just one practical expression of what love looks like. Caring for people in need. 
And you understand how, how John is, is getting the attention of his group. He's saying, God sees us in need, and he dies for us. We see our brothers and sisters in need and say, well, hope that works out for you. How does God's love dwell in us? If that's what we do. Because God's love is a love that gives sacrificially. Now I know there are complicated questions in a world like ours where we're connected to so many different people and we're always intersecting, our lives are always intersecting with people in need and we, we can now be aware of millions of people constantly who are in need. And there's discernment needed in all, all those kind of things. But let me just say that we don't need to excuse ourselves from the call to radical care for our brothers and sisters with those kinds of considerations. Yes, there will be a need for wisdom, a need for communal discernment, but the call, the urgency for Christians is to take up a life of care for others. And specifically, this text calls us to care for the poor among us. There's a much greater urgency from John that we learn to love than there is that we learn to identify who is worthy. That we learn to care for the poor and that we learn to recognize who are the worthy poor. Again, I don't say that to dismiss the need for critical discernment, but we need to be faithful to the text, too, and let it call us up to higher ground. Last verse here. <clears throat> Little children. I like John. John is such a man of love and gentleness. With statements like this, you see it. Uh, Little children. You know... You know how I can preach like Charles? Beloved. Then I preach like Charles. <laughs> Charles says beloved, but Charles is kind of like John. See, Charles has a gentle pastoral way uh, when he speaks. Some of us speak and it's like we're saying, listen, dummies. <laughs> that's not the way John was. That's the way Charles is. Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see, when we see Jesus, when we see the way he loved, the way he brought a new kind of love into our world, the way he shined that light on us and said, this is true not just in me, but it's also true in you, then we say, this love can be touched. This love needs to be practical. This needs to be something people can grab onto. Concrete love, a sacrificial love, a humble love. Learning to love in our actions. And as I close here today, I just want you to think about all the practical ways that we can learn to love. Sharing and caring for people in need. But it goes far beyond that. Speaking words of kindness to people. Now we have access to things that make this so much easier, like text messaging. Where we can speak words of love to people. And sometimes change a day or a week for people. Because we decide to speak a word of love. Listening to people. And we stop and just pay attention to people. Making time to be with people. 
say, what's, what's going on with you? I'd like to be there for you, praying for people. What, what I want you to get is these are possibilities every single week for us. And the message we have heard from the beginning calls us to enter into this more seriously. To recognize this is really life. And we have to make spaces for this. We have to make planning for this. There need to be times that we have set aside to be together with people. Because it's hard to love people when you're never with them. And we have to say, do we really want to hear the message of love in a way that it can be internalized? I want to read something to you as I close. This, uh, I've hesitated to read this because I feel like it may be, seem like I'm patting myself on the back when I read this. Um, but I think it's a helpful illustration. So uh, just uh, indulge me, if you will. When Olivia and I lived in California, uh, early in our marriage, we uh, had the occasion to minister uh, to a young lady there. She was 12 years old when I moved there. And uh, guys, I'm not trying to act like I did anything super special. This is not Mother Teresa kind of love here, okay? <laughs> now, Olivia did more than I did, so maybe she could claim more, but um, I hope you understand uh, that I don't have any letters that I can remember that I could share with you representing how often I've failed to love, <laughs> but those could be written. And uh, so just know that when I share this one example, this is not meant to give you a full characterization of us. But this, this uh, letter stands out to me as an example of what happens when you just love a little bit. When Olivia and I got ready to move from California, this, this uh, girl, now a teenager, wrote us this letter. Oh, and uh, she loved, you need to understand this to understand the letter, she loved the, uh, you know, the, Greatest movie series ever, High School Musical. Um, she loved it, and she loved the character Corbin Blue so much. So, she said, Dear Luke and Olivia, I love you guys like my second parents. I love you more than Corbin Blue. I just want to thank you so much. The times I spent a night at your apartment, I'm truly going to miss you guys. I hope you keep this letter forever and ever. I'm doing a pretty good job now. Don't forget about me loving High School Musical and, of course, Corbin. But, hey, he's awesome. Sorry for talking about him again. Olivia, here's to you. Thank you for the Bible studies we had. You helped me through my rough times. I really appreciate that. Here's to Luke. I beat you in the staring contest. I hope you remember that. It was cool playing that game. Last but not least, Luke and Olivia, you guys will always be in my heart, no matter what. Love, and she writes her name. Now, I, I put that before you to tell you that when you just do a little bit, maybe a little bit more than we've been doing, you can end up making a difference for somebody. What if we all just said, I'm going to love a little bit more? What if the, the whole church said, in the name of Jesus Christ, who has risen from the grave and brought us into a new world, I'm going to love a little bit more. 
And instead of criticism and condemnation in the church, what if we had cards and kind words floating around? What if we had people taking a little bit of extra time? Open up their home just a little bit. Paying attention to people just a little bit more. Saying, yes, I will love a little bit further, even when it pushes me or makes me sacrifice a little bit. What if that increases among us? And I don't mean to say it's not already here. I'm appreciative of so much love that's already present here. But there's room for more. There's room for more because the true light is already shining and the darkness is already passing away. And brothers and sisters, we can step further into it. This is the message we have heard. This is about life from above. Praise team, come on up. I'll just say this. Lord, thank you for teaching us. And by your spirit, may we learn love. Lord Jesus, like you demonstrated it. Like your people have lived it before, may we live it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.